Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Welcome to our Independence Day weekend special. Something a little different this week. Later in the show, our friend Morgan Housel talks with best-selling author Bethany McLean about one of the most hotly debated companies in the world, Tesla. But earlier this week, I got the chance to catch up with Nell Minow. She's the vice chair of Value Edge Advisors and an expert in corporate governance. She's also a film critic known as the Movie Mom. We dig into the movie industry in a little bit, but first, I wanted to get Nell's thoughts on recent business headlines. At the start of this week, Boeing was scheduled to begin a three-day certification test for the 737 MAX. I read a piece in the LA Times from early January. You were quoted as saying Boeing's board of directors was the quintessential 1990s board. It was CEOs and luminaries, but nobody with the kind of expertise you really need. We're going to find out if the plane has improved from a safety standpoint. But from a corporate governance standpoint, do you think Boeing has improved? No, I don't. I think I think they, they have taken a few steps, but they're a long, long way from where they need to be. I mean, remember that the other plane passed this test already. And uh, what I said uh, is still true. They don't have the kind of manufacturing expertise on the board that they need. Um, I, this is, you know, the MBAization of a company. They used to be known for their excellence in manufacturing. And after all, they are a manufacturer that is their actual business. And yet they decided to go with a financial outlook rather than a manufacturing outlook. And they outsourced a lot of stuff, including the software that got them in trouble. And they worked out, they, you know, they all of a sudden their balance sheet became their product instead of the airplanes being their product. The problem is that they're kind of protected from market forces in a way, just because there are not enough people in the sector. Uh, Basically it's them and Airbus. Uh, So I don't think they have felt the pain that they need to, to make the kind of changes that I would expect. I want to get your thoughts on a couple of pretty high profile accounting scandals that have happened over the past couple of months, one in China with Luck and Coffee, one in Germany with Wirecard. Um, In both cases, hundreds of millions of dollars and upwards of $2 billion just kind of suddenly went missing. And when I step back and look at these types of stories, one of the questions I have is, what is reasonable for individual investors to expect in terms of oversight from boards of directors? Because I would love to think that this type of accounting fraud can be stopped completely, but I also am reminded of the fact that we're all human beings and some human beings are really greedy and they're gonna do this to the point where they're committing financial crimes. Look, there's always going to be crooks. Uh, All we can do is try to minimize the risk. And uh, yeah, looking, I'm just going to say China's a problem. That's all I can say about looking. With regard to Wirecard, first, I want to tell everybody to listen to the recent Invisibilia podcast about the harassment of a Wirecard short seller. Um, It's it's just harrowing. Uh, 
but the short sellers, of course, have done very, very well with Wirecard now, and it's the customers and the down, downstream customers who are in trouble. I thought it was very interesting that there's a guy named Peter Denon, who is the chair of the Association of Supervisory Boards in Germany. And as you know, they've got two boards at each company. He has called for drastic change to their corporate governance rules. Uh, and there have also been calls for change to their accounting rules. But I like the fact that they're focusing on corporate governance and on a tighter tie between uh, investors and stakeholders and the board as one of the ways that they can go about uh, preventing this kind of problem in the future. I talked recently with um, Olga Kazan from The Atlantic. Um, and one of the things we talked about uh, was office politics. And, and where I'm going with this is, I wanna get your thoughts on where the office building is going in a post COVID world. One of the things Olga talked about was, you know, look, if you're, if you're, if you're good at office politics, you need to start developing other skills. <laughs> um, and I'm curious if you think what effect, if any, the board of directors meeting in a post-COVID world looks like, meaning does remote meetings, does that have any effect on a company's board? Because I could see it meaning, hey, you're more likely to just get more of the CEO's buddies on the board. I could also see it in a more positive light that if there's less in-person schmoozing, then maybe we're going to see boards with more people with that relevant experience that actually helps a business? That's a very interesting question. And I'm going to put it in a slightly larger context, if I can, because it's the thing that I've been spending the most time thinking about lately. A lot of companies are talking about getting back to normal. And what I'm hearing from the investor community is that they have no interest in going back to normal. They want back to better. They want to see companies that are more resilient, that are managing risk better, they particularly want to see companies that are doing better with incentive compensation. And they're very, very skeptical about companies that started talking about repricing or resetting options uh, when there was the market dip earlier this year. And with regard to board members and office politics, listen, interpersonal skills will never go away. They are always going to be very, very important. And whether that has to do with the way that you uh, operate on Slack or on uh, email or on whatever comes after Zoom, uh, they're, they're always going to matter. And I think in a way they may matter more when you don't have the golf game and the corporate jet uh, to, to soften um, the uh, interactions. I'm glad you mentioned the corporate jet because you know that's another thing that's really in flux at this point, isn't it? That you have presumably every chief financial officer is looking at how their company is spending money and presumably looking at ways that they can start cutting spending. I mean, I, you know, I have friends who work in big financial firms in Manhattan and some of them are talking about just completely doing away with the expensive real estate in Manhattan and going to more people working remote, um, smaller offices, maybe out in the suburbs, that sort of thing. Um, is it, a, is it wrong to think that more companies are moving in that direction? And B, am I wrong to be optimistic that we're going to see tighter purse 
strings at companies. I hope you are. I hope you are because we've spent a lot of time on the prestige of a Park Avenue or a Wall Street address that really is not delivering very much for investors. I think one of the things that we will find as we go, instead of back to normal, we go back to better, is we're going to find that a lot of employees have enjoyed the flexibility of working from home and will enjoy it more when their kids are in school, of course. But uh, I think that uh, you will find that uh, people will operate much more efficiently uh, as a result of the workarounds that they've developed during this time. And they've discovered that a lot of things they're spending money on, nobody really needs. There's been uh, a lot of talk recently uh, in the media for all of the right reasons, for all of the obvious reasons um, about diversity. Um, when you think about companies getting back to better and some of the people that you're talking to in the investor community, um, does that include greater diversity on boards? Absolutely. I thought it was it was wonderful. I wish I could remember the name of the person who was doing this, but there was somebody on Twitter who just every time a company tweeted out, we believe in Black Lives Matter, we believe here's what we're doing and we're giving money to this, would tweet back, may I see a picture of your board of directors? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more calls for diversity. And in particular, I want to recommend to all of the listeners, a guy I follow very closely on Twitter, uh, Judd Legum, L-E-G-U-M. He's kind of the IF stone of the 21st century and that he just goes deep, deep into the documents. And he did a terrific article where he said, here's a list of companies that have come out with sort of fatuous statements on behalf of Black Lives Matter. And here is who they're lobbying. Uh, expenses are going to, and a number of them were giving money to uh, candidates and uh, representatives who had been given F ratings by the NAACP. So I hope that that kind of of uh, illumination of where the money is going uh, will result in some real changes. Uh, I want to switch to the movie industry in just a moment, but uh, I, I have to mention, uh, if for no other reason than nostalgia, uh, Chesapeake Energy filed for bankruptcy this week, and and part of the media coverage was a walk down memory lane of former CEO Aubrey McClendon, uh. and some of the things that he spent money on while he was oh, CEO. Louis the, Louis the 14th of corporate America. I, I you know he really I, I did a little Schadenfreude dance when I got that news because he was just such a thorn in the side of investors for such a long time, and I really get a big fat I told you so on him because when he got his company to buy his map collection at a valuation by his personal advisor, uh, who uh, guided him in accumulating the map collection. And this was an antique map collection. So why an oil industry, a gas industry company would need antique maps is beyond me. Um, you know, those the, that was not just a humorous anecdote. That was an indicator. That was a red flag of catastrophically bad board oversight. And then we later found out that he was on both sides of various deals uh, with the company, and the board allowed that too. Now, a lot of CEOs have a wine cellar in a cave that's hidden behind a broom closet. I mean, that's just how it is, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> he really, they, somebody should write an opera about him, just a, a, a TV show like Tiger King, maybe. More with Nell Minow after this. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill talking with Nell Minow, corporate governance expert and film critic. It was mid-June 2013, almost exactly seven years ago, that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were on a panel together at USC, and they made comments about the future of going to the movies, saying it was going to be more like a Broadway event. It would be $150 a ticket. Uh, we've heard a lot of companies and a lot of industries talk about the speed of innovation over the past few months. For a long time, I thought that Lucas and Spielberg were just wrong about this. Now, with the rise of streaming, I'm I'm wondering if they're right that we are going in that direction sooner rather than later. What do you think? I got to give props to the entertainment industry for pivoting so effectively this year. You know, they kind of stuck their toe in the water with the Trolls World Tour. It made more money uh, streaming than it did than the predecessor did in theaters. And so now everybody except for Christopher Nolan uh, is uh, is on board with that. And speaking of $150 or $500 a ticket, Hamilton is coming to us streaming a year early. Uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, it's going to be available on Disney Plus this week. So I think it's quite the contrary. I think that the delivery system for movies is, is changing in a very fundamental and permanent way. Of course, we will still go to the theater. There are still movies we'll want to see in the theater. Um, and, and there is nothing like the theater experience, but I think we will see a lot more coming to us directly. I do want to say one thing, which is that I was one of the people that wrote to Adam Aaron, uh, at AMC when he said that they were not going to require, um, people to wear masks in the theater and God bless him for listening to his investors and his customers. They walked back that policy within 24 hours. Thank you for doing that, because uh, I live close to an AMC theater. I would like to think that at some point I'm going to get to go back to the movies. And when I saw that initial statement, I thought, you're crazy. You're crazy. So I was glad he And you cannot eat the popcorn with a mask. And that's where they make their money. But they're just going to have to figure out something else. So back to Hamilton. I, the New York Times reported this week Broadway is going to remain closed at least through the rest of 2020. Do you think we're going to see Broadway moving to the big screen even more than what we're seeing with Hamilton? I definitely do. And one thing that I've particularly enjoyed at home is the way that Broadway and also the British theater has put some of their productions up on YouTube. Some of them as fundraisers for the theater community, some of them just to keep us happy. And there, you know, Irving Berlin was right. There's no people like show people. Those theater performers are so comfortable uh, performing in, a, in that kind of environment. And don't you love Cameo? Have you tried Cameo yet? I have not tried Cameo yet. Oh, it is the best. You can get top Broadway talent to deliver a message for you. And my niece is a big, big musical theater fan. And I got her somebody from the cast of Wicked to deliver a birthday message. And she was just beside herself. All right, I'm gonna look into this for some family members of mine. Um, in terms of the movies that have already been made that were slated to come out uh, this year, the big budget action movies of the summer and even into the fall, more and more of them getting pushed back for obvious reasons. Is there one in particular that you are really looking forward to seeing more than others? 
Well, yeah, uh, the movie that I'm most looking forward to seeing this year has been pushed to August. I'm crossing my fingers that they'll let us see it at home. And that's the new version of David Copperfield with Dev Patel by the same guy who did Veep and In the Loop. Uh, I love his work. Tilda Swinton as Miss Bessie Trotwood. That looks amazing to me. Of course, I'm looking forward to the Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, John David Washington, go, go long on John David Washington as uh, your investment in being a movie star. He is going to be huge. Um, the Outpost was supposed to be on the big screen. That is going to be coming to us at home. So I think, um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot uh, at home uh, and some is going to be postponed until next year. Two quick things before I let you go. To go back to Lucas and Spielberg, you know, part of their comment in 2013 was from now on, it's only going to be the big action movies on the big screen and the mid tier, sort of uh, smaller, more quieter movies, they're going to get squeezed out. With more streaming, though, do you think they're actually? could be a renaissance for those types of movies. And I'm dating myself a little bit, but I think about a movie like Tootsie from the early eighties, which is, you know, a wonderful film um, that probably wouldn't be made today at that budget with those level of actors, um, even though it was a great movie. You've got it exactly right. There has never ever been a time uh, that has been more open to those smaller budget and middle budget movies than the streaming services now. It's been terrible for uh, for for the, the, the entities competing with each other, but it's been great for consumers. We've got Hulu, we've got Apple TV+, we've got Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, all with buckets of money, all just fighting each other for these uh, films. And there are tremendous numbers of very successful documentaries and small budget films that are getting much bigger audiences than they ever did in theaters. So I couldn't be happier. Independence Day weekend, what is an Independence Day themed movie you would recommend? Well, obviously Hamilton is a good one. Uh, and uh, I always recommend 1776 with the singing and dancing founding fathers. Uh, it is, uh, it, it never, fails to lift my spirits. And I always, even though I know how it ends, I always kind of hold my breath as you're waiting for that first signature on the Declaration of Independence. It's just wonderful. Raise a glass to freedom, something they can never take away, no matter what they Our tell Independence you. Day weekend special rolls on after this. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Bethany McLean is a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and the author of several best-selling books, including the definitive work on Enron, entitled The Smartest Guys in the Room. Recently, she sat down with our man Morgan Housel to discuss several topics, including one of the most fascinating business leaders of the day. I want to start with a topic that is near and dear to a lot of Motley Fool investors' hearts, and that is Tesla and Elon Musk, which I know is a, a company and a person you've spent a lot of time thinking about. And I just want to make a statement about Musk and see how you react to it, which is that Musk, of course, is a very unique, eccentric individual 
who doesn't think that a lot of the rules apply to him, either explicitly or implicitly, who kind of does things his own way. And that is what people love about him. And that is why he's been successful. Someone who starts a rocket company in their 30s doesn't think a lot of the rules of success apply to them. And someone who you know, builds a, a, a car company in their 30s to take on General Motors and Ford doesn't think a lot of the rules apply to him. That's what people like. But of course, there is the other side of thinking that the rules don't apply to you, which is pushing the boundaries is maybe the most charitable way to put it of rules and regulations about corporate decorum and posting things on Twitter, et cetera. He's kind of the Steve Jobs, Howard Hughes of our day. And I, I just don't think that it's almost possible sometimes, this is a, you know, sort of a provocative statement that you can have someone who pushes the boundaries in ways that you like, and then you can expect them to not push the boundaries in ways that you don't like. I'm curious uh, if that makes sense to you when thinking about and summarizing Elon Musk. I think that makes a ton of sense. I've, he made me start thinking about this idea, which is that the visionary and the fraudster are much uh, closer in personality than we would think. I mean, you think of them as being on opposite ends of the spectrum, and I actually think they're like so many things where the circle meets, right? And the line between the visionary and the fraudster is much more narrow than than, than we might like to think. And I, I sometimes think that the only thing that might separate the two is that the um, the visionary gets away with it. He doesn't get caught, in the, he or she doesn't get caught in the middle. Right, they for some reason get get the rope from investors or get the, the rope from capital mar the capital markets to be able to persevere through the times when they were lying and it wasn't working and they weren't telling people that it wasn't working to get to the other side when it works and all sins are forgiven, and so sometimes I think it's just a timing question and you can look back to Enron um, Enron Broadband which was one of their most fraudulent businesses was actually Netflix ahead of its time, and that's that's what it was so. Some of the line is between um, the idea and the execution, and 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 so that's one of the deciding factors um, between between the two, I think. But I, I I I agree about Musk. I would say though that some of his behavior, particularly on Solar City, which is the thing I looked at most most closely, crosses over the line from just being outrageous and thumbing his nose at accepted ways of doing things to something awfully close to outright fraud. Um, so, so I wouldn't leave it at just the kind of harmless characterization of him being eccentric. I, I think he has gotten awfully close, if not over the line of actually lying to investors. Now, now, what is what is the story about the acquisition of Solar City? Obviously, that was a standalone solar company that uh, he run that was acquired by Tesla uh, two years ago. Is that right? It was acquired back in, I think, summer 2016. But um, you'll have to forgive me if my timing is off. This um, the last few months seem to have compre compressed all time, <laughs> such that I no longer remember when anything took place. So, with that caveat, uh, the two things about the acquisition that stood out to me was that. Solar City was already in terrible shape um, when Tesla took it over. And uh, arguably, and this is still being litigated, but Musk did not disclose to um, to Tesla shareholders just how bad shape Solar City was in. He knew more than than the Solar City people. He did the uh, I'm sorry, he knew more than Tesla's investors. He did a big rollout of something called the Solar Roof, um, which looked like it was this great workable product that Solar City was going to change the world with, and it turned out it was just a prototype that all these years later still doesn't actually work. Um, and all of that goes is, is one part of it, but the other part of it, which is important, is that Musk also bailed himself and his, and his cousins out with the acquisition of 
of Solar City. So they'd made personal loans to Solar City, and when Tesla took it over, that bailed out Musk's personal fortune as as well. And so there's 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 a self-interested aspect to that that doesn't jibe with Musk as he presents himself, which is a guy who doesn't really care about the money and is just in it for the rest of humanity. Because the Solar City bailout was a bailout of the company, but it was also a bailout of him personally. Now, I've also heard, you know, this is rampant speculation. They need to make that caveat. But if there was a case in which Tesla ever got into really bad financial straits, I've heard people say, and again, just speculation, don't worry because SpaceX would just buy Tesla and kind of wrap everything up into Musk Inc. And just seeing what happened with SolarCity, do you think that's even a possibility someday that these will all just kind of be wrapped into one Musk corporation? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. It all depends on what the capital markets are willing to finance, right? I don't know what SpaceX's financials look like um, to have a clue if SpaceX would even have the capability of, of bailing out Tesla. But I'll just add here, I actually wouldn't my, the piece I wrote for Vanity Fair about Solar City was very, very negative. Uh, I think the headline probably <laughs> says it all, um, and I, I, I won't repeat it here since it um, has, has a profanity in it. Um, but, but I wouldn't bet against Musk because of it, precisely what what we began this conversation with: this idea that the visionary and the fraudster are awfully close, closely related, and if the markets are willing to keep financing Musk, if he can keep raising capital. He might be able to pull it off. Uh, I would. Yeah. He's, he's been able to pull off a lot of things that people said he wouldn't be able to so far. I'm not finding on whether he should be able to, whether that's fair, whether he's he's a, he's a good man. But I just, the fact that I'm as negative as I am on the Solar City deal does not mean that I would be short Tesla, were I even ever to short, which I, I don't do. But I mean, the, there's there's actually a lot of examples historically of very successful businessmen that if you dig into it. We're, you know, we're right up against the line of visionary versus fraudster. John D. Rockefeller, Cornelius Vanderbilt is probably the biggest example. Um, there's a story of Vanderbilt that I love where someone, uh, uh, he, he's about to make a, a big transaction. And one of his offers says, one of his officers says, Cornelius, you know, you're going to break every law by doing this transaction. And he goes, do you think the laws apply to me? <laughs> he, goes, he goes, do you think you can build a company this large and follow all the laws? So I just, I just want, it's interesting when we're thinking about corporate heroes, people too, that we admire, um, to think about like the line between uh, risk and luck and like where, where it ends. It's often a very fine line and it's often only known in hindsight. For Another sure. example that I think is probably fairly close to Musk right now is Masayoshi Son, who runs the SoftBank Vision Fund, this $100 billion VC fund that got so much attention in the last couple of years. Its biggest bet was, of course, WeWork. And now, you know, the, the story's not over yet, but it's looking like it's going to be, a, a, it's, it's not going to be a happy ending to the story. And I just think if there's a comparison in both Masayoshi Son and Musk are people who don't think the rules apply to them, swing for the fences, do things their own way. For, with Musk so far, it's worked out quite well. Tesla stock is at or near an all-time high. Whereas with Sun, it seems to be fairly quickly unraveling. And that's just, I just wonder if with Tesla, it's just uh, an incredible amount of risk that is being taken that is so far worked out that that might give a false sense of security to investors going forward. Is that a fair characterization? 
I think for sure it does, right? We're all creatures of the past and we believe that our, one of our big failings is that, that we believe that whatever happened yesterday is gonna be similar, is gonna dictate somehow what happens tomorrow and that the rules are gonna be the same. And because Musk has always been able to get access to capital when he's needed it, people believe he's always gonna be able to get access to capital when, when he needs it. And that mm -hmm. can change on a, on, on a dime. The thing that I've thought about a lot is that the one problem, one underrecognized problem with people who believe the rules don't apply to them is that they do make enemies as well. And when the proverbial here, I say, I'm not going to swear when the proverbial hits the fan, um, I can't help myself. Um, those, those, those enemies come out in full force and mean that a company that might otherwise have, have, have survived if it didn't have so many enemies, then it's destined to, to fail. Um, and I think of a couple of examples of that. One is Enron itself. Um, another is Valiant, which it didn't mm -hmm. quite fail. But when, when, when it came out the way they'd been operating, even though people kind of knew that all along, um, um, the, the number of the, the sheer weight of the enemies that that company had helped to help to take it down. Uh, back to your point about Sun and Musk on a slightly different note. I, I hear you about about the parallel. It's a really interesting one. And maybe this is, just betrays my bias, but Musk at least is trying to build something and try, trying to build real things. And so that's where the parallel breaks down for, for me and where I actually have some degree of sympathy and respect for Musk. He's trying to do something. He's building cars. He's sending rockets into space. I mean, these, these, these are real things. When I compare that to investing in WeWork, I mean, yes, in some ways, there are personality similarities between the two between the two men, but in terms of the substance of what they're trying to do, I, not so much. See, that's a really, a really great point is that even Tesla's biggest detractors, people who are short the stock, every one of them who I've met says, look, the cars are amazing. The cars are absolutely beautiful. They're an engineering feat. And SpaceX is an incredible company. Like they just took two men to space that are still in space right now. There's no question that Musk is a talented engineer operator. I guess I, I mean, there, there might be some people that would question that, but he's building real things that have worked and have real value. It's just kind of pushing the limits at, at the corporate governance level, you might say. Uh, I'm curious, though, let's say Musk woke up tomorrow, and I don't think anyone expects this to happen, but in a different world, he woke up and he said, I'm going to follow all the rules of corporate decorum. I'm going to operate like a good Harvard, like a good Harvard Business School graduate and operate you know, according to all the textbook plans, I think that would probably be a net negative for Tesla, at least in the eyes of a lot of shareholders. And it seems like what has made the company so successful to date, to the extent that it has been, is the ability for Musk to push the rules at every single avenue that he can. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think it's definitional in, in, in many ways. And look, as a, as a journalist who, who likes the world of business precisely because it is so wild and crazy and you can never predict what's going to happen if every single business leader marched in lockstep to the rules laid out by Harvard Business School. I mean, it would be so boring. So I, I don't want the musk of this world to go away, succeed, fail spectacularly. I mean, that's what, that's what makes the world of business so Shakespearean, right? Who would, who would possibly trade that for flat gray characters? What do you think most investors get wrong when thinking about Tesla? Interesting question. I don't know that I think like, I think what most bulls get wrong about, most people who are bullish about Tesla get, get wrong is that Musk can be very petty and very 
capable of doing things just for his own self-interest. So people tend to think that he's this grand visionary who couldn't possibly care about his own financial well-being, and the Solar City story would 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 belie that. So I think that's that that slightly nasty, very self-interested characteristic of him is one that I, I think I think people people don't maybe don't give enough uh, enough credit to. I think the bulls also get wrong this this notion that that when you make enemies and the knives are out for you, if things get bad, they get really bad. <laughs> um, uh, so I think I think um, and then on the on the bearish side, what what do people get wrong? I think it's just that that when you think back on the history of finance, bad endings aren't inevitable because there are people who have lied to investors, who have deceived people, who have made promises that weren't true and who still make it to the other side and go down in, in history as business icons. That's a great way to put it. Um, is there anything that could happen that would change your mind about the company? Hmm. Well, I think if, but it's so hard now to gauge that. I would have said three months ago that if Tesla produced really consistent um, earnings and cash flow and showed that it could make, make money on a consistent basis, that, that that would be the thing that would change my mind. I guess it still would, but I'm not sure amid the pandemic what the fair timeline is for thinking about that. More with Bethany McLean right after this. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to Morgan Housel's conversation with best-selling author Bethany McLean. Bethany, I want to shift gears now to fracking in the world of oil in the United States, which you've written so well about. And it's a story that is fascinating, but gets lost. I, I had not heard much about it until you wrote your book. And it's so interesting that so much of fracking has been this energy revolution in the United States over the past decade that has been great in so many ways and has been celebrated in so many ways. But as you, have you written about and shown, the economics of fracking are, to put it lightly, horrible. And, that was, and it was horrible when oil was above $60 a barrel. And last month, we, we saw oil at negative $40 per barrel. It's just a completely different world in the last couple months. I'm curious what, what your take is on the world of oil and fracking, particularly as it pertains to the last three months, that as we're in a worldwide lockdown, the demand for oil has plunged to levels that no one expected. I got interested in it precisely because I thought often people who live on the coast, we are divorced from the world of energy that makes our lives possible, right? And so we think about it in terms of, is it good for the environment? Is it not good for the environment? And we don't think about it in terms of how it, it, it enables our life. And when you think about how fracking changed the discussion of energy in the United States, it's just dramatic. Back in 2007, Congress was holding you know, hand-wringing hearings about shortages of natural gas. And, and, um, and we were all sure that the United States was 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 running out of oil. Uh, and it's just fracking changed all of that. And it's a huge technological revolution. But as you said, it, it doesn't make money. And really why the last few months have been um, have been dispositive in some ways in terms of the events that that, that took place, the, the seeds were already sown. Investors were already becoming um, disillusioned with fracking because of the lack of ability to make money. So the publicly traded uh, EMP 
stocks had performed terribly over the last couple of years for precisely that reason. So what happened with the pandemic really splashing demand for oil and therefore um, um, sending the price plunging. And then the Saudi Arabia, Russia um, feud where they both refused to cut production and um, crashed the price even further. Those were just nails in the coffin for, 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 for US shale. And now I say that loosely because the thing that has enabled the shale revolution is cheap capital. And now it looks like we're going to have cheap capital forever. So we're right back in this world where perhaps economics don't matter. If everybody can get access to almost free debt, then the rules of economic reality are somewhat suspended, right? So assuming that continues, I'm, I wouldn't predict the death of U.S. fracking. I think it should be clear to everybody that this much hyped notion of American independence energy independence is a fraud. And I think production levels are going to be way down from where they were when the U.S. was briefly the world's largest producer of crude oil again. Um, but that doesn't mean fracking goes away. Now, there's a long history of boom bust in the oil sector. That's the whole history of the oil sector. Do you think the levels of fracking that we were at in previous years when it, when it was so high is ever going to come back, that we've just got a little bit carried away, but after the next cycle, it'll come back? Or it's something that it's just the technology does not work economically and we're going to be at sort of a permanently lower level? So there are two questions. There are two um, things bound up in that that I don't know the answer to. One is, could there be a technological improvement that enables fracking to make money to produce free cash flow in a way that it hasn't beforehand? Yes, there absolutely could be. Never count out the ability of this country to come up with technological innovations. Thus far, the ones that have been touted have not worked. And, and so you would look at that recent history and be a little bit skeptical as to whether this great technological innovation really is on, on, on the horizon. But the other, the other component to it is the last, I mean, however many years has been just, if you ever thought that Wall Street was economically rational and people only invested in things that were gonna make money and the things that weren't gonna make money didn't get any funding, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> look at WeWork, look at Theranos, look at, look at fracking, look at, I mean, everything, right? Look at the subprime mortgage collapse. And so whether people, investors will be willing to throw money at fracking again, whether or not it's economically viable, I, I don't know. I mean, quite possibly. So Bethany, my final question, I'm curious, as someone who has covered corporate bad behavior as kind of the common denominator of what you've covered over your career, how much of corporate bad behavior is just integral in who we are as humans versus something that we learn from and can improve from over time? Oh, I think it's integral in who we are. And um, I, don't, I don't think our desire to believe in things that are clearly in retrospect going to seem to be too good to be true is ever going to go away. And to some degree, I don't think that's a bad thing because per where we began this conversation on the note of visionaries versus fraudsters, if you don't have people who are willing to believe in the visionaries, people who are willing to get behind that person who's got the grand plan to make the world a better place as totally inconceivable as, as it is, then that would be a pretty hopeless world to live in, right? So you actually, you, 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 you want that. The, the fact that people are willing to believe, I think it can turn into a very bad thing, but it actually is, is, is also a, a good thing. I don't think you'd want life if we were all cynical. Um, and personally, selfishly, I kind of like the idea of always having more to write about. So I guess I'm biased. That wraps up our Independence Day weekend special. If you're listening on one of our affiliates, thank you for supporting your local radio station. We really appreciate it. If you're listening to the podcast, you may have noticed our new logo. There's more to be found at our brand new swag store. You can get your very own Motley Fool gear by going to shop.fool.com. That's shop.fool.com. 
On behalf of everyone at The Motley Fool, have a safe and fun Independence Day weekend. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Roido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 